You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Here are from my class at the University of San Francisco All right. on professional development. <laughs> and I think we should have more of these drinks, right? Perhaps, <laughs> Peter, well... Yeah. I can There's nothing more professional than drinking, I think. I think <laughs> at a Jesuit university, would, Dennis, would we approve? Of what? Drinking? Drinking? Yeah. Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. You did say yes, right? Yeah. It might have... Yeah. That might was have great, because wherever you're seated right now, you're, we're just a fan. So it was like, like I was, yes, I approve. Was I was going to say, it might have started as a no, and then through the fan, it kind of... There we go. Changed into a yes. So if I know if I'm not lucid here, it's because of this thing. So this is actually called a bottle grove here. I want to uh, hear the. Well, so this book is uh, dedicated to a man named Daniel Hyatt, and um, he we lost him just recently, and he was a bartender, and he was the inspiration for a bartender who's in this book, and. He uh, was, I really liked him. I didn't know him that well, but I liked him. And he was a big reader, and, but uh, was a not, didn't come from a place of much privilege or education. And he was really interested in making delicious cocktails, which I thought was this interesting borderline between something that was really arty and really kind of down low. So he spent a lot of time figuring out what happens if you put a pomegranate and you grind it up with brown sugar and you uh-huh. make your own bitters. Ooh, that and, sounds and, good. You know, which is kind of fancy, but kind of like farming. Uh-huh. And then he opened this bar, or, or ran this bar for a while on Hay Street called Alembic. And yeah. he was always saying like, how do we get all this, these like tech guys? I need a bunch of tech guys to come and spend like $5,000 <laughs> on fancy scotch and then leave so I can do my own magic with the people that I like. And um, that seemed very emblematic of a certain moment in San Francisco to me. And um, he, like a lot of uh, people who kind of drink for a living, he did not always make, it was clear he was not always making the best uh, choices in Mm -hmm. his life. Um, But also there was something about his very early death that felt like that the idea that he had of having kind of one foot in freaky individual San Francisco and the other hand kind of reaching toward the wallet of all of mm, the new mm, money mm. of San Francisco was an unsustainable vision. Mm. So it's always a little dangerous, I think, to decide that someone's death is symbolic of something that you'd like to battle right, about. Right. But, um, <laughs> what would he but have it felt that way, I mean. What would he have said about that? Uh, you know, it's funny, whenever someone is like, if he were alive, what would he say? Right, and right. I just think, like, that he would totally want to be alive. Like, <laughs> you know, he'd be like, I'm sure that I'm not dead. I understand in some parallel world I was dead. Yeah, but when I was working on the book, I thought, uh, oh, well, I'll give him a copy and maybe he'll get a kick out of it. Mm. And um, I didn't get to do that. Mm. And so uh, Dan Stone, who's a literary uh, force in this world, um, and then another local guy, and he, I met him when he was producing stuff for NPR, and he interviewed me about Edgar Allan Poe, and then he worked at the Alembic bar. So one day I um, said, uh, I ordered a drink from him, not recognizing him, because it had been like six years or something. Yeah. And he said, hey, do you want to talk more about Edgar Allan Poe? And I was like, 
what perfect place is this? Yeah. When does that happen? Um, and he runs a, he just opened a new place, a new bookstore and bar in the East Bay called North Light, which yes. I recommend for people. Um, it has a curated, uh, it has a small book section that's curated by different people. So like Patty Smith told him what books to put on one shelf. I think and you did as well. I, well, I mean, yeah. If you run into me in town, I'll tell you eight books to buy for nothing. <laughs> that'll never happen with Patty Smith. And if you go there and you have like a glass of Prosecco, that, then you think to yourself, how can I not buy the five books that Patty Smith is not going to buy? Obviously, I have to buy them. So, and I, it's smaller than this space, pretty much. I mean, narrower. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cozy and like cool. Like the East Bay, it's smaller, a little cheaper, and cooler. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I was thinking, yeah, I, di I didn't know about Daniel's story. Um, I was actually thinking that Dan Stone, who you just brought up, inspired you in some way uh, because I knew about Dan's past as a bartender. Yeah. But I had no idea about <laughs> Daniel, your friend who just died. Um, yeah. So, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, there are a lot of Daniels in that story. So we have a troika of Daniels here, or, right? Or right. Dan, when it turns into a radio Stone. play, we'll have to change everyone's names. Oh. <laughs> um, I'm glad you mentioned um, Northlight before I did, because yes, it's in the East Bay, and I was going <coughs> to give them uh, a plug. Um, well, for me, one of the ideas of this book is the kind of small, uh, freaky, and individual places in San Francisco and the surrounding areas that mm. are really the heart of the city and the heart of the beautiful idea that we could fight against the corporate mm -hmm. juggernaut that we feel pressing upon us every glancing moment. And um, it's exciting for me for this book to come out and be in places like Poetry Room and City Lights Books, where, which is obviously mm -hmm. one of the large constellation of things that keeps us all from um, madness and despair. Mm -hmm. When it does, obviously we're all feeling madness and despair yes. about sixty-five percent of the time, but the rest of the time, no, we're there not. It is because of these tiny efforts, and uh, Bottle Grove is about trying to work that out mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. a changing environment, and try to figure out what's real and individual and freaky about yourself mm -hmm. and about people you attach to and about your schemes and dreams. Mm. What I like about it, I mean, any number of novels have dealt with uh, technology and. Uh, the present day and the Bay Area and all that, but it's done. You've written it obviously, so it's done with a light touch. So it's a it's a comic novel in a lot of ways, I think. And yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Steal my copy, maybe, but we should tell these fine folks a little bit about it. I mean, sure. uh, Bottle Grove is not only a, the name of a bar and potentially a drink, but a um, a small forest in San Francisco as well, right? A fictional. Forest. And yeah, where do you it's imagine one of those it? Scraggly parks in San Francisco. So like Buena Vista, but smaller, maybe. Um, well, it was definitely inspired by Sterngrove. Stern so we opened a wedding yeah. um, uh, in in a forest, and in, in, indeed, when I was starting the book, and I had a really terrible first draft, I was showing it to my editor, and it took place in Sterngrove, and there was a long passage that tried to explain exactly where Sterngrove was in San Francisco, and my editor, who's uh, uh, blessedly without tact, uh -huh. said, like, I don't care where this is. Okay. <laughs> I'm never going to go to Sterngrove. Yes. And as she started, she wasn't even Alan number three, and I realized that it was much more fun to think of it um, 
in a kind of bopping around in a fictional place. So yeah. one of the things I did, I was really inspired by Rebecca Solnit's Atlas of San Francisco, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which has a bunch of um, kind of overlays and angles by which you can look at the city. And so imaginary I takes on the, on the city. You could take all those scraggly parks and put them wherever you wanted. Yeah, and yeah. suddenly all the horrible parts of my first draft, which were, you know, like, he tried to find parking on Funniest Avenue, but he couldn't really, so he had to go up there, but it was too close to Westport. You know, all this really boring stuff right. is what uh, my first drafts are made of. I could so just let go. So Just sell those. I've been to Stern Grove a couple times, but there's there were a lot of people there always, and that's sort of what keeps you from there, but I didn't get that impression with with uh Well, I, I grew up near Stern Grove, mm. and as with a lot of, of these spooky parks, they're in the daytime, they look totally harmless, and yeah. at night you realize you're about to be murdered. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and and that's something that I kind of like about them. Yes. And, um, you know, you spend a brief time in your youth where you're like, this is cool, because at night it kind of feels like I'm going to be murdered. And then you reach the age where you no longer want to be murdered, <laughs> and it get a little scary. Uh, so it starts off in, in the park, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a wedding. Yeah. And as you say, uh, weddings aren't just about the wedding itself. Often they're couples uh, made <laughs> at weddings. <laughs> they become couples in yeah, one in way every, or another. And every wedding is the makings of another. There we go. An old proverb. Yes. And so uh, the, there's a wedding, and then some people sneak off to the wedding to um, have some fun um, of a physical kind. And they're prou they probably shouldn't do that, given who they are. And um, the wedding, as some weddings do, as the party goes on, stops being a kind of celebration of love and becomes a kind of an, uh, terrifying ritual mm -hmm. of uh, masochistic, psychosexual, informative. As you happens. Know. Yeah, as happens. So, um, hey! Uh, so, um, one of my favorite writers just walked up. All right. It's a nice, nice moment. Uh -huh. um, and so, uh, yeah, so it's about, it looks at various forms of what we think of as civilization and what we think of as kind of wildness. Mm -hmm. So San Francisco is being, as we all know, kind of built uh, up or over and um, shiny new uh, buildings uh, uh, that we could all fling ourselves from are being mm -hmm. built every 15 minutes. And then there are these scraggly parks where kind of nothing has changed. And um, I like to think that about people too, that mm -hmm. there's parts of ourselves that we make smoother and mm -hmm. make more attractive to others. We link mm -hmm. up to other people. The book plays with the mm -hmm. idea that marriage might be kind of a long con, that mm -hmm. you present a good idea of yourself to someone and then you're kind of stuck being that good person that you promised you were. And as the relationship goes on, more and more pieces of the costume fall off and you're revealing yourself to be the horrible person that you always knew. We don't know were. what you're talking about. Yeah, no. No. Or so I've read. So yeah. exactly. Um, I was thinking of that on the way over here, actually, some back to the park, some combination thereof, because I hadn't been there in years, but at the base of the Transamerica Pyramid, mm -hmm. there's that uh, park of redwoods, this sort of yeah. ersatz forest. Yeah, there's right. a, and there's a, and the parrots are there a lot. Yeah, um, I didn't see any parrots. Which, but well, yeah, it's, but that's I always like them because they're the wild parrots of San Francisco underneath the wild beach. parrots. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> they're parakeets, and of course parakeets. they're not wild. They're not indigenous to this part of the world. So this that park seems sort of like an embodiment of what you're talking about, this... Yeah. The towers and nature right. and then in the daytime, it's just full of people who are like, I still smoke, I don't yeah. care. Yeah. And then at night, 
you're like, I'm just gonna take this way to the Muni, and then you're like, I guess I'm dead now. Uh-huh. I'm going to be killed. So there's and wild animals. That's was, part of it too. I was gonna say there's also a fantastical element. Uh, the guy you see on the cover, um, Reynard, this um, the fox. fox, Renard. Fox. So I was starting um, on kind of the very first day that I started uh, writing the book after thinking about it and taking some notes and things like that. I took a walk in my neighborhood and I saw a fox, which I'd never seen before in my neighborhood. And I see them all the time. Foxes and coyotes that have been uh, out by wow. new construction and are just kind of wandering the streets. This is the first time, I mean, I've been here for 20 years, but I've never heard of people seeing foxes yeah, in San Francisco. And, huh? what, and the, you see... The fox has this kind of personality. Yeah. It's like, hey, how you doing? Uh, they're not, you know, the, yeah. the the coyote is like, don't mess with me. Right. And the fox is like, I'm kind of thirsty. You want to have me in for a minute? <laughs> and you have you just see a fox and you He's think like, fox. oh my god, yes, and that's what they want, of course. Yeah. And I was reading then about foxes, and it's actually one of the few animals that has a kind of universal association. Anywhere that there are foxes, the culture made up a story about the fox. And the fox is the same in every culture, which is mm. like an amoral trickster. Oh, yeah, yeah, but if you look at a Native American myth about a snake and an African myth about a snake, you get totally different snakes. But everybody here is onto the foxes. <laughs> I did not know this. It's pretty amazing. So I found this medieval, uh, old medieval thing that was super popular in its day, and uh-huh. now we don't read anymore, called Reynard the Fox. Yeah. And it has the shape of the old stories before we had kind of... Uh, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey kind of nailed into us, yeah. where everyone is behaving without right. any rhyme or reason, you know, like people behave. Yes. And Reynard the Fox is really the king of that. There are all these stories that's like he makes a long plan to marry the captain's daughter. Uh-huh. And then he's like, I'm just in a year. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> you know, he's done like 16 things. And he's like, yeah, screw it. I'm just going to kill her. And, and you know they're like end of chapter two, chapter three. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah. And so I put a fox in the book who's a uh, kind of a shapeshifter mm-hmm. and is um, causing uh, mischief among the marriages. And he sort of circuits his way through people as well. I mean, not to give away yeah. too he, much. He kind of but moves around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as a shapeshifter, I think. But so when you saw this fox, did that was that something in the back of your mind? Did you sort of did you think that in there I something to work with or how? Yeah, I'm trying to. I, I mean, I try to get um, to open myself more as I go through the journey of writing books. Hmm. As John Cage says, court chance, but yes. do not submit to it. Uh, yeah. well, so I tried to court chance. I saw a fox, and I was like, let's read about foxes. And then uh-huh. when I was thinking about marriage, it all seemed like a, about the same thing. Hmm. And there are hmm. a lot of stories in which a fox marries someone, and for thirty years everything's happy and the wife comes home one day and it's like you've killed the children and he's like ah, I'm a fox <laughs> sucker <laughs> you know and it's another story that seems very uh, it bumps up against what we know of human nature but it doesn't have a moral to it like mm. what's the moral be careful so there's <laughs> you know hope, there's hope you didn't marry a fox that's the moral yeah uh <laughs> so, Rona, I mean Raynard, uh, Raynard. That's an ugly. Sounds better in French. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I I saw him, and you don't have to comment on this, but um, 
as a sort of stand-in the way I was reading it before um, a, a corporate type who might exist these days in the tech world and yet there is also another one of those in the novel who goes by the Vic yeah this guy's name is Vic or Vic Victor, what's his? I assume his name is Victor. You assume it's Victor. Why wouldn't his name be Victor? Yes. Because he's a tycoon. Yeah. I, and um, so there's a there's a, a, a big uh, tycoon visionary of the transparently pseudo intellectual dangerous sort mm-hmm. that we recognize all of us at first in San Francisco. Um, and you know, if you you can come and sit on the front stairs because my mom isn't coming after all. She talks about coming, but she's. Yeah, and originally, so I was thinking about him, and he is—he uh, gets used in a pawn in kind of a con game. Basically, mm-hmm. the bartender meets a a uh, young ne'er-do-well dame, and they cook up a plan to uh, pursue romantically the tycoon in the hopes of both getting money. You can imagine that plan works out super well, as it does in all you know, as it does in all noir novels. Everyone turns out fine, and. Uh, I wanted to call the tycoon what they call the victim in a con game, which mm. is the mark. Yeah, but then I realized right. that we already have a mark, electronic tycoon in the Bay Area. And I'm, there's yeah. enough to talk about him. We don't have to talk about him anymore. Does so he know then about I was this? watching an episode of Law and Order, as I do, and they said, uh, uh, what's up, the Vic's house? Oh, uh, Vic. the Vic. Yeah, thanks, Esipatha Merkerson. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have made that connection. Nope. Yeah. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg, uh, somebody to read this novel, perhaps. I don't know if he's a, is he a reader. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I, if he, I mean, maybe Christine but Evans could get him. About the cult of that visionary, right? There's there's evil tycoons everywhere, yeah, all yeah, across yeah. this land, and we're all subject to their robber baron ways. But there's something about the way the the narrative that this certain kind of tycoon makes up, right? Which yes. is like, I've made up something that you've never heard of before, and you're mm-hmm. welcome. Mm-hmm. And I'm a visionary, you know, and you're like, what's the idea? And he's like, it's basically taxi cabs. Yeah. Or like, have you ever slept over at someone's house? We do that. You know, it's yeah. just, have you ever had food come to your house? We're doing that. It's these ideas that don't actually seem that new. Yes. But that they do. And then all of them, of course, have disastrous, horrible consequences. Mm-hmm. Right? So Mark Zuckerberg was like, wouldn't it be fun if before you went to college, you could look over who was hot and who wasn't? I have a system for that. And now he's like, all, all elections are screwed forever because of my system. Oh, well. <laughs> and here I was thinking of Benioff, not Zuckerberg. Uh, I think y- talking about skyscrapers got me thinking about Zuckerberg. And yeah. Perhaps I saw there was an article in uh, France this morning talking about him as a hero, and it was just like full on. Right. Yeah. Uh, hero. Yeah. Just the yeah, bowing fun. down to I the. I mean, yeah. there's on one panel, oh. one tiny little shelf in here, mm, right? Mm. Are uh, randomly in this room. Mm. are 10 visionaries mm. per panel. Mm. Mm. Just conservatively, because let's face it, not all the poetry is good. Right, and, and instead we talk about these guys who are like, I have an idea, uh, you know, you like music? That's my no. idea. Uh, so. <laughs> and it just felt very foxy to me. You know, I was just reading about a guy who just bought a $30 million home, mm. which is pretty, and his company's never made any money. Mm. And I think that for those of us, and even me, for whom lightning has struck via Snicket, and so I'm not going to pretend to be scrambling for spare pennies, mm. but I, I don't understand if you can't have access to, if you don't have any money, 
how do you get the sack of gold that you bring to the real right, estate right. office and you give it to them? Well, it's sort of what happened with Amazon for for years there, I think. No money. Yeah, and, yet. and now all the money or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, I don't know yeah. how it is. Yeah. So, um, which makes me think, um, you now have a cell phone. You're just telling me. I do. Have a, I oh, didn't have one forever. Yeah. One. So for the past three months, right? Just a few months. Yeah. Your first ever cell My phone. One. Wow. Uh, I know, sorry. So I want to hear the story of how this... Uh, I was traveling with my happened. sister, and I said, will you take a picture of that and send it to me? And she said, I will, but I want to tell you something. If you do have a cell phone, the cell phone is held by whatever woman is standing next to you. <laughs> and oh. I said, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And is there any device anymore? I forget the name. Suddenly, that just takes pictures and sends those to people no. without the phone part. Well, of course. Now I'm, you know, now yeah. I'm like, I can't wait to get in a car and meet the pizza, right? And right. Call back my friend and send the funny sign that I took a picture of. You know, and I'm just, I fell all into it. So you're full on addict. I, yeah, I'm not an addict, but I, but I, you know, I, it's you can't avoid it. Here we are. Mm-hmm. I also have a teenage son, so I gotta talk to him and that's how one does it. Did he have a phone? Yeah. Okay. And Lisa... So you have to take Muni by yourself for many months and then we'll give you a cell phone. He's like, okay, see you later. Yeah. Not wait. Right, right. So, three phones in the house now. Yeah, there's probably more. I don't know what I have. Okay. No, there's only three. It's just me and my wife and my son. Is that what you're asking? Yes. (laughs) I don't have any more children. Uh... I'm just curious about how you're using this now. Are you reading on it? You know, some people will no. read uh, long form even. Or I, but I, I mean, the like everyone else, I um, reach for it all the time and, mm-hmm. um, and then wish it would go away. And then I could isolate myself from it. And, um, you know, I um, pick it up and it was made by children in a factory and I um, read a you know, somebody who's like protest this movie because it isn't as good about something as it ought to be. Right. Sign right. this petition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, what if, what's happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I come here. I feel a lot better. Yeah. Uh, there must be, I think, Lawrence among his signs. Uh, he's got one about cell phones, right? Hang up your cell phone. Your cell phone with an ass, yeah. Cell phones and read, talk to each other. Yeah. I quoted a poem because today I swim in the bay mm-hmm. a lot of mornings and the Dolphin Club where you can go swim in the bay is another kind of place of freaky individualism that mm-hmm. you can't believe still exists. It's really fun. Yeah. It's an old building. You should just go there sometimes right near your Valley Square. It's fun to go swimming but a lot of people are afraid to go swimming. But you should just go and see the building. It's really nice. And there are all these old boats that I refer to as Wes Anderson boats. <laughs> they look like they're from a Wes Anderson movie and they're the last when moats made according to the Steve Zissou, I think. beautiful. And um, someone, uh, and we were uh, discussing the current uh, political situation. I don't know if you guys follow politics at all, but we have this president right now. He's like a terrible person. Um, so we were discussing that, and whenever, and they were in the boat when they were talking to me, and I was in the water. And um, so I got to quote that great early Getty poem. I heard him read it. Uh, right after 9-11 that ends uh, a rising tide lifts all boats if you have a boat, if you have a boat, if you have a boat. Yes. Um, I mm-hmm. think about that a lot. 
and that's what, where we are in San Francisco. There's a tycoon. Tycoons are making beautiful things, as they mm -hmm. do with Bottle Bourbon, as long as you are there with the funds to participate in them, the city is moving and doing mm -hmm. well, and we're all having a fantastic party. Mm -hmm. Are you're you not, you're not. Are you finding yourself swimming more in the past few years? Yeah, I really like it. Mm. I try to, if anyone wants to go, let me know. I've tr I'm I try to seduce more people into it. It's very cold, so you can't think about anything. Yeah, so that <laughs> it's only that much more of a oh distraction. Oh my god, it's cold. Mm. And so you swim, and I mean, it's hard to talk about without sounding like a hippie. Right. But that's okay. Um, you you know you're swimming in the same an enormous body of water that is most of the Earth is this yeah. one body of water, oh. and you are swimming in it. It's pretty great. Mm -hmm. And then if you swim at the Dolphin Club, there's a sauna afterwards, so that, that feels that, good okay. too. Okay, that's different. There's yeah. some old retired guys. I would say is the sure. bulk of the people who are there, and they um, sometimes they swim like all day. So we'll swim, and then they get in the sauna, and then they have a shot of Fernet Bronca. It's like 10 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how did you get turned on to this place? Um, I always wanted to do it. Mm. Um, I grew up here, oh. and I would see them swim every so often. I always wanted to do it, and I didn't for whatever reason. And then um, my father died, mm. and um, my sister and I both learned that we'd always secretly wanted to do it for a long time. And um, I was swimming my umpteenth lap in a lap pool, and my father died, and I got out of the pool, and I thought, what am I waiting for? Mm -hmm. And I started swimming, it's really great. Mm -hmm. It has a side effect, which is that you talk about it inseparably, so it's like yoga, <laughs> or um, acupuncture, or other things, all of which I'm in favor of, but it has that side effect where, you're, where y you are like, I just want to say a couple sentences about it, and someone's like, you've talked about it for two hours, I don't know you. <laughs> I'm not liking this part. Uh, <laughs> it is making me think uh, suddenly. Um, I'm always looking for distractions, right? And we talked about this last week, I think, in class. Uh, creative distractions, uh -huh. or not creative, just going on a bike ride to get us thinking of nothing or things other than what's going on. Right. Uh, but I think it was the former head of the uh, MIT Media Lab, and he left to, he moved to the Mideast, I think Dubai, and. Um, the one thing that he did, um, that he loved there, and part of the reason I think he took the job was that he could go diving. And he could just be in the water for hours and away from computers and any connection to the real world otherwise. So yeah. Perhaps we need a little bit of all that, you know. Well, that was some of my uh, pirate novel, also for sale here. <laughs> uh, we Are Pirates. Um, started out as this kind of joke idea, which was I thought, wouldn't it be funny if some teenage girls teamed up with some people who lived in an old age home and became pirates? And then I read about piracy, and um, the history of piracy is really the history of desperation. Mm -hmm. There's a really great history of piracy called The Wooden World. And, is, and so piracy is full of everyone who is getting thrown out of the culture on land. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge queer history of piracy. There's a lot of, um, you know, if you're the unfavored race or if you are in love with the wrong culture, you're there. And, um, and so they cool invented people. their own uh, rules, mm -hmm. and um, and so the book is really about ended up being about how we throw away old people and teenage girls, and no wonder they're really furious, and um, maybe we should try being kinder to them because they will kill us otherwise. There is that. Uh, so as a native of the city, and since we have some writers here, I am curious. Uh, 
I mean, you went to school, and then I think you came back. You went to you were at Wesley. I grew up here, Wesley? and I went to fancy pants school, and then I came back here, and then I lived in New York for a little bit, and then I came back here, and now I'm mm -hmm. here. And what do you think life would be like if you were here, starting as a writer in this city? Um, and I don't I know how many. Terrified? Are you guys terrified? Yeah. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, um, Especially I know that the right answer is, well, I have a bunch of publishing contracts right here with your guys' names on them. There you I go. Know that's definitely the that top thing to say to the students. But um, I, um, Especially I, mean, I, I all I can say is about literature, whether or not you're a student or not, but I think that the rewards of attaching yourself to writing and literature in any way that feels good to you is the most profound reward you will have. And when I had a beautiful mentor, she died a few years ago, uh, she taught me in undergraduate school. Um, so I, I arrived at the fancy school and there was a very famous writer there and I thought I wanted to be a writer and so I took her class on the first <coughs> day of class. She said, next week I want you all to memorize a poem and then we're all gonna go out into a field and recite them. And I thought, I guess I don't want to be a writer. <laughs> um, and so I dropped out of the class. Mm. And, and my, like, I was kind of relieved. I was like, thank goodness I don't want to do something that everybody knows you can't do. Right. You know, let's, yeah. let's figure out law school or something. I don't know. And, um, and then I uh, met this other uh, writer, not famous, Kit Reed, a wonderful writer. And she had a writing class where you turned in 10 pages every week. And the class only met together three times at the beginning of the year, so she described the process, and at the end of the year, it was kind of a party, and in the middle, to make sure no one had gone crazy. And then mm. you had 15-minute uh, conferences with her individually about your 10 pages. There's nowhere to hide. Mm -hmm. And she told you what to read. You know, she said, I see what you're doing here. You need to read to the lighthouse. And so I got a great literary education, which was basically her secret weapon anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, and so at the end of it, I said, I was graduating, and I said, tell me if I'm good enough to be a writer. Mm. And she said, figure out if you like it. You have to go figure out if you like it. Mm -hmm. And I was so mad at her. Mm. And I was like, just tell me. Yes. You know, I know Maybe that you have a list of who gets to be a writer, and who doesn't, and I don't know if I'm on that list. How hard can that be? You're a woman. Um, and I don't mean that genderized, I just meant like right, a person. Right. Uh, and but she was right. I mean, she, you know, she said, you have to figure out if you like it, because if you don't like it and you do it, that's going to be horrible. Mm -hmm. Because if you do it and no one pays attention and you don't get any breaks and no one reads you or they read you and they think you're terrible, mm -hmm. you get to have these moments where you're interacting mm -hmm. with your own texts mm -hmm. that are the highlights of your life. Mm -hmm. And if it's not the highlight of your life, then you're really screwed mm -hmm. because then you're going to be horribly underpaid and participating in something that is not what anyone considers the mainstream or mm -hmm. full power. And if you don't like it, you're not going to like it. I mean, this is yet another novel where you can tell that you are clearly having fun, and there are all these delightful lines throughout it. I mean, I'm yeah, I mean, I've had of jobs, and I've done this. This is a lot better. I really, really <laughs> like it. You know, so I did it today. I'm working on a new book, and I did a little work today, and I really, really like it. And so, um, you know, it is an honor to be part of literature, and it can feel, particularly when you're starting out, about you, and, you know, you're... Um, 
young or starting out or both, and um, you know you have to have a certain amount of arrogance to be a writer, and so therefore when no one's recognizing how wonderful you are, that's tough. Mm. Um, but in the long run, you just get to attach yourself to things. You know, you get to be in a room like this and participate in it. Mm. Um, the great writers here hiding in the back, and. Um, you just have to attach yourself to something that feels good to you, which is also the theme of marriage in this book. Mm. Should I read a little bit? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, but first I just want to call out a couple lines as examples Ooh, okay. of having some fun. I mean, be fun. Um, one line, I want to fuck you, he said against her mouth, so badly. And that night he did, very badly. <laughs> <laughs> um, this one line... Uh, it was actually kind of important to me to put some bad sex in this book because yeah. I had just written all the dirty parts, which has some bad sex in it, but has a ton of sex in it. And I feel like there's so many novels where people get together and they're like, oh, it's so delicious, finally. Mm -hmm. But that's not how it works out all the time. Or this, this great I know someone's, at least one person is here with their mother, I feel like, so I don't want to talk about it. This one <clears throat> great observational line. Uh, the woman opposite him, in a cafe I think it is, is poking a message into her phone, which is flat on the table, like it's prepped for surgery. I love that. Um, and Thank you. something about every, everywhere is sushi, but nobody is Japanese, talking about the restaurants in town. Yeah. So all these almost... That's on Union Street in my imagination. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Everything's sushi, nobody's Japanese. Um, all these... Um, Observations that I, I thought a poet might make, and um, you—I I know you read a, a lot of poetry. I started poetry. I thought I was at a, at one. I, I started uh, at the beginning of college, before the famous person class. I thought I was going to be a poet, and I was. Um, my poems were getting longer, mm -hmm. and my poetry instructor said very nicely that he thought that I might be writing prose. <laughs> you've also written though about how you've spent time um, in recent years sitting down and appreciating it more. I think. And, um, yeah, and I, I mean, is it I um, something you've I don't wanted read to do the more news anymore. The first thing in the day, I yeah, stop doing that. Yeah, yeah. I read it later, um, yeah. and I try to be pickier about the news that I read. Mm -hmm. um, but I read poetry the first thing in the day. Mm -hmm. Coffee, it's really good. Mm -hmm. um, have you guys made any sort of life transformations? I, I switched off of NPR as a clock radio to um, KCSM, to so jazz. I had this moment when I was reading this essay by Ann Carson, mm -hmm. who, and it's in that book, Float, that you can see actually yeah. up there on the top shelf. Next to um, the big box. And she talks about the, this, I didn't even know this part, I'm sure you already know, and this is old news to Peter, but um, there's parts of the Odyssey in which the language of the gods is written. And so the problem of translating this mm -hmm. comes up because you want to make it in the language of the gods. Mm -hmm. And she talks, and then she connects this to something that she read when she was looking at paintings by Francis Bacon, who painted these paintings of, of popes screaming. Right. And he said, I wanted to paint the scream and not the sound. Mm -hmm. And she talks about the art of translation of the scream and not the sound. So I was reading this essay where she's picking through you know, parts of ancient Greek that people who study ancient Greek are puzzled by, and this painter, and I thought, it's been a long time since I've read an essay by someone who went and looked at something, yeah. and 
brought new information to me mm -hmm. because a lot if you read just kind of casually particularly the news there are a lot of people who are like I, something i thought just now about something that everybody has just seen right 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 and that Hot um for instance, I, I know that i'm not going to vote for their incumbent president mm -hmm. so i'm trying to not read something that's designed to make me not vote for him because I've already got that down. Like yes. I don't even know. Yeah. Life you know, is short too. There's not like one flub he's gonna do where I'm gonna be like, "That's <laughs> it. <laughs> you took a sharpie to the yeah. map. Now <laughs> I know I'm not gonna vote for that's you." Right. And so, but, you know, but I mean, the news game is a game, and mm -hmm. it is telling you to read these things. And so, when I open the newspaper, which I get still on mm -hmm. paper, mm -hmm. uh, I. Um, I say to myself, like, are you going to read? Open to this part of the world that you've never been in. Read something right, about right, what's right. happening there. Yes, yes. Don't be like, the guy you're not going to vote for yeah. said an outrageous thing yeah. about another person who's probably also corrupt. And good luck finding that thing that's not about Trump, too, sometimes, because it's a yeah. saturation. Uh, read to us, please. I sure. think from the beginning, beginning, or wherever you'd like. All right. You want the beginning, or you want like, a little scary part? You can vote. Who wants the beginning? Everybody wants a scary part? Scary, scary wow. I think, yeah. Free Halloween. Not a close election. <laughs> huh. That's a good omen. <laughs> I had that fantasy about the next election that it would be like 100%. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? It'd be like, not, it's, it turned out that like, even uh, Donald Trump went in and was like, I can't do it. Uh, I don't want this job. Australia, maybe. All right. Uh, so Paget is our, uh, uh, she's a young woman in this book, and she's dating the Vic, who is the, uh, the tycoon mogul. And the Vic, I think the only thing you need to know also is that the Vic uh, has a kid. His wife died in childbirth. Wife's name is Marie. And they're early on a date, and they're uh, driving around. Look at them in the rearview mirror if you tilt it right. They're a couple. They're heading somewhere. Boy, would her mother love it. Another transfusion of money into the family. No need to liquidate the bottle name, the Paget home. Would she love it? The Vic's eyes and the sunglasses are cavernous, something a bear might sleep in. And the bear, she guesses, is her. They stop. Here, Paget asks, what's here? You couldn't trace this back to me with an army of actuaries. Drink up, liquid courage. There's some beer in the park. Liquid never feels courageous to Paget. It's too easily procured. The bottle's almost done, and she's not braver, just more at odds. The Vic has opened a gate and a fence, the sort of gate that looks permanently locked, rusty forever in a field of blank cement and barbed wire. The buildings, windowless and warehousey, stretch up, way up, over Paget's fuzzy head. She has no idea where they are, any of these buildings, or the man, famous and sunglass, who is punching into a pad of numbered buttons to make a steel door slide badly up, or her. Inside it is dark, and this wealthy man is beckoning. A plan so twisty, a scheme so thorny, it must be made of pricks. Come on in. Vic, what is this? She can hear herself slurring. Something we're working on, he says, and switches on the lights. There's nothing in the very large room, just a clean desk and two chairs and someone's can of soda. The Vic walks to it and tips it into a very cheap office trash bin where it gongs loudly. It hardly looks like a business, whatever it is. It looks like a front. In the corner, when her eyes adjust, is a tarp, bright blue and too new. 
The mobile tugs it into his arms, and Paget can see there's a large hole in the floor, dark inside and rough around the edges like they made it themselves. He beckons again. Seriously? This is serious, he tells her. There's a narrow ladder. The rungs too close together so it's more like train tracks leading straight down. You are freaking me out. Wahaha, the Vic deadpans. I'm trying to show you something. Nobody has seen this. Maureen? Definitely, definitely not Maureen ever. Come on, it's light down there. She peers down and sees that the ladder ends in a room maybe 15 feet down, and there's the glare and hum of fluorescent lighting. You got me drunk to go down a ladder? You got yourself drunk. Look at me. He does. He looks at her. He looks fine. Just a guy, casually dressed next to a big hole. She puts her hand on his. I don't know what this is. Nobody does, he says, and starts down. On the ladder, he looks vulnerable, which he said was the point. She basically has to go down after him. The metal of the ladder is warmer than it looks, almost hot in her hot hands. There's a smell, and halfway down the ladder, she traces it to another garbage can, this one large and outdoorsy. The smell is cheap food, garlic and grease, Chinese takeout maybe. And when the Vic helps her down the last rungs, the garbage can is the only thing in the room. No. There is a large metal cage in the corner, the size of a small car, rectangular and empty, something that makes Paget think of a one long ago scary day at the circus. This could be big, the Vic says. He is smiling like a boy with a joystick, and then Paget sees that the cage is not empty at all. The occupant moves out of the shadows of the room, and she feels her skin crawl away with it. The Vic told her a story. When the Vic, not yet known or famed or moneyed, first made his way to California in a van crammed with all the things he owned, and a dream, it says in the magazine article, he stopped at a youth hostel somewhere in blazing Arizona and ended up adopting a dog, mangy and boundlessly jazzed up, a mix of every large wild breed, left tied to a bag crack with a thick rope that prickled his fingers when he untied the knot. Finally in San Francisco, before Grant going to crash with a buddy, now a major shareholder, he took a celebratory walk in a little forest so the dog could shit and bolt around and he, soon to take tech by storm, could just breathe. Another owner was there with a dog of the small yippy throw pillow variety. The dogs went at each other, surprising everyone. By the time Vic yelled his way over, the big dog had the small dog in his jaws. Vic, uncharacteristically, did not know what to do. But the other owner, frantic but sure-footed, had a knife in her pocket, and the Vic left the forest without a dog. The Vic told the story a lot, nudging it, shifting it, detailing it, disguising each move. He conned it out, the way he conned the deal out of cogswheels, the money out of the music, tycoon, titan, widower, father. He made it work. He moved forward. These men, Paget thinks, as the cage rattles, these men and their plans. Mm. Scary guys. Thank you. And I can't help but feel, as I'm reading that too, it presents all sorts of cinematic possibilities, and maybe that's just because, in the wake of um, the the just treatment that series of unfortunate <laughs> events got on Netflix, it, I don't know how many of you have seen that, but it, and you were involved, right? Yeah, in I was really involved. Yeah. So and it felt like it. Thanks. Um, I got, I mean, thank you. Yes, yeah. thank you. Uh, you don't have to watch it, but you do have to turn you do. it on. 
<laughs> Every single night for totally, about totally a week. And they're really nervous about it all the time. So just, if you would do me a favor. We all mm -hmm. gotta work together mm -hmm. on this. Um, yeah. Um, are there any possibilities? It's kind of a cheesy question, but um, do you envision any sort of possibilities for? Uh, oh, envision? I don't uh, know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, too early. And, yeah. yeah. Um, the drink. Tell us about the drink, and also tell us about your interest in cocktails and about. I like a cocktail. Uh, the happy couple. This is a. Is this a real? It's not a real drink. No, there's some uh, fake drinks and yeah. real drinks in the book, uh, and. Um, yeah, I don't even remember what's in this. Damn yeah, what we invented the cocktail, the bottle grove, and it's something that uh, a triple variant of a, a bourbon, right? Yeah. And uh, two different types of bitters. Kinds of bitters and, and some prosecco. So Dan is delicious. It is. Dan's the guy again at Northlight. Your yeah, buddy. Dan's the guy at Northlight, and he uh, used to work for the Daniel Hyatt, who's no longer with us. And mm. Daniel Hyatt had a similar drink, and um, mm. it's fun. And uh, th I guess that's another tip for. Um, Young writers. When I lived in New York and I was a young writer and I had no money, um, we did this trick, my wife and I, where we bought for like $2, we bought a vintage cocktail book, and then we'd invite people over. We'd be like, look, we're making this crazy cocktail from the 40s. You bring the bourbon, you bring this, you bring this, and then they would bring it, and we would have like peanuts and ice. Well and people were like, you have the best parties, you're so generous to have us over. And we were like, oh, it's just in our nature. Uh. Give so freely. Um, and then when we left New York, we had all these crazy bottles of you know, banana liqueur, all this crazy stuff banana that liqueur. you're not going to pack up <laughs> and take it. So we left it out on the street. And I liked picturing that some kind of desperate person was like, at last, I can make a yellow bird. You know, I can make these crazy cocktails with what I have found gifted here to me. Uh, banana liqueur. Um, Galliano is what it's called. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Stay away. Have you um, had it? Don't have it. <laughs> uh, questions, guys? I'm sure you have some. Please. Um, You've made up in your, you've made many cocktails for many people since then with your own booze that you, you know, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I was, I spent some years in a position where it was the um, job of other people who could afford liquor to come to my house and give it to me. Mm. And now I, it is my job to try to host yes. a little more. Right. <laughs> it's my turn. Uh, questions, please, guys. Let's hear them. Yes. Yes, oh. you. Me? Yeah. Oh, great. Me, me. Um, so you spoke about how I guess um you're prompted to answer like if you like writing or not to kind of pursue it. But um, after you figure out that you do like writing, what was the next obstacle? In terms oh, what was of the next writing? obstacle? Yeah. Oh like, God, like, everything was the next obstacle. Yeah. Or rather, like, what was the next like? Um, mental barrier that you had to overcome and how did you do that? Because I imagine even if we do like writing there's so much more after that that seems very daunting as well. Yeah, I mean, every kind of writing that you do is practice and you should can count as practice. And so um, in my day, because I'm a thousand years old, um, what I did was I wrote tiny pieces for crappy newspapers that nobody was reading. Now that is called the internet, mm. um, and and it's easier, I think, actually, to get a piece up someplace on the internet, as we know, 
Um, and you just have to take it really seriously, and you have to do it as well as you can. And, um, and that's practice, because your paragraphs will get better. And um, I was lucky enough to have some, a, few, a little more editorial uh, input than I think happens on the internet nowadays. But I saw some people who said, you have no quotes from anyone who thinks other than what you think about this issue. Go ask the person. Don't ask a friend of yours who agrees with you. You know, call somebody and get a quote. And now I don't. Now I write fiction almost entirely, and I don't call people for quotes. But what it does make me think is, oh, what's it? What's the rental hall like in the wedding? Go to the rental hall, mm-hmm. and you go to the rental hall, and something happens to you at the rental hall, mm-hmm. and it's not even maybe going to happen in the rental hall in your book. It's going to happen in something else, mm-hmm. and that was because I le- I had to write crappy pieces, and I had you know, and I wrote about. Boring, unbelievably boring things. I interviewed notary publics because I didn't know what a notary was. And um, yeah, it's true. I interviewed a notary public and I went in, and uh, he was a man of, of an Eastern European accent, and um, he had a, a number tattooed on his arm. And I made an assumption about what that was because mm-hmm. my family fled Germany in 1939, so I totally know what this is. But I, it was like, I was like, it's not right in the usual place. and. I feel like they were kind of exact about that, but <laughs> obviously I know what this is. And then he gave me his business card, and I looked at his, and then he had his phone number tattooed on his arm. <laughs> <laughs> and that wouldn't have happened to me if I hadn't interviewed him. Right. So yeah, you have to do. I mean, you have to do a lot of bad writing. You have to do a lot of bad writing for yourself anyway, right? Like you're. Uh, I wrote a whole novel, and then I made it as good as I could, and I even I knew it wasn't good, and I mm-hmm. thought I was a genius. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, you have to learn a lot, and um, you have to keep writing that stuff. And a lot of, I think a lot of times people say, well, there's the holy writing that I'm doing, and then there's this trash writing that I'm doing for a living. This trash writing can totally train you to be a better writer. Mm-hmm. You just have to, and you have to engage with it, and you have to give it your all, and you don't want to because you're not that interested in it. But the more you engage with it, the more it turns out someone has their phone number tattooed on their arm. He said it was in case someone found him. Wow. <laughs> That's the only explanation he gave. He was like, it's in case someone finds But he acted like, first of all, everyone has their number tattooed. There was someone even asking. Well, and also, uh, what I thought immediately was, it was a 212 phone number. And mm-hmm. I was like, it was right when New York was splitting to, to 212 and 917. And I was like, your phone number might change. And it's tattooed on you. That's what the other are. Only for the first six months are they going to say the the real number is that. Someone found. No, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, So, are you? Do you also say have a notebook where you're writing down details that you think up that you? I'm curious. Cool. Do I carry it with me wherever I go? Uh, I mean, something like this: the woman, the way she is with her phone, as as if she were doing surgery. I can picture that coming up coming up in your mind um, as you're at a cafe, say, or I mean... Yeah, maybe. So. I mean, maybe. It, it's possible, for instance, that I, <coughs> what, I like, what I like about that sentence is the phrase, prepped for surgery. Yes. So it's possible that I wrote the phrase, prepped for surgery mm-hmm. down, but it's also possible that I wrote the words preps, because it's a funny verb. Mm-hmm. Verbs are fun. So, but it's possible that I just made that up on mm-hmm. the spot, too. But I think even... As with writing the crappy piece, writing things down in your notebook. You know the way you make a list so you don't, and then you don't, you never look at the list again because you mm-hmm. made the list and the making of the list was the list. 
and mm -hmm. make, you write something down, and then you practiced doing it. Because sure. You say, oh, that's a perfect sentence, and then you write it down, and you're like, no, it isn't. And you make it a little better, and then you just got practice making a sentence better. And there's a list or two in this book as well, um, the factor in. So what's, may we ask, the last thing you might have written in here? Or something um, that you've found? Yeah, my brother-in-law told me about a game that his sister and her husband play in a car, which is that when they, and it's apparently like a regional Rhode Island car game, which is you're driving around and the first person to see cows says, I get those cows. <laughs> That's regional. <laughs> I get those cows. <laughs> so he's like, I get those cows over there. I get those cows. And then um, when you see a cemetery, the first person in the cemetery says, I get all the cows. <laughs> and then you've won the game and you start back over at zero for the number of cows. I like it. And I have no idea what that is, but there's something about like, I get the cows, I get all the cows when you see death. That's half of Rhode Island right there, yeah. Yeah. The distance you travel. That's worth writing down. I can see why you write that down. Yeah. And right above it, someone said to me, where they work for the summer, and they said, it's extremely picturesque. I thought that was funny, too. Extremely picturesque. Somehow it sounds like it must be awful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right? Like picturesque is a Horribly hill. picturesque. Extremely picturesque is like a hill covered in kittens. <laughs> <laughs> it should be cuter, but yeah. it's worse. It looks like a Civil War photo. And are you keeping to that mostly, or are you going to notes mode at all on your phone? No. Or? Okay. That's yeah, I write it down on a piece of paper. And then I write, I write everything longhand, too. I write them on mm -hmm. legal pads. Lots of interest. Yes. All right. Hey, uh, hey. Do you think the, the writers should be selfish for their time? Because I have uh, I worked in uh, two days a week and uh, and I have school and I barely can find the, the time to write. Yeah. And you know and I don't want to be rude to others to other people. You know, I'm, I'm writing something and uh, can you cover me? And I don't know. Yeah, no, it's really hard. I mean, I think one of the hard things about figuring out being a writer while you're in school is that school's taking up a whole lot of your time that you otherwise would be writing at, so you don't know if you're good at it because you're busy doing school. And then, but then, of course, you got to get a job. I mean, you already have a job because you're in school, and you have a job, and you got another job, and yeah, time and time is terrible. It's horrible. Um, you understand why people like go off to, a, you know, I mean, it's. It's, I think, more of a male tradition. It's like, I'm leaving the whole world. I'm going to live in a hut. Screw all you people. I'm going to write my perfect book there. The thing is, those books don't tend to be better than the people who are just, you know, like, I'm raising three kids, and I run an hour every day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's horrible. You have my, I mean, everyone has my sympathy. Everyone who's a writer in this room has my utter sympathy. And um, yeah, it's really tough. And uh, I hope, you know, Netflix gives you a lot of money. Mm. John, you had a question. It's a lot easier while I'm about that. Yeah. So uh, no, okay. Write your first drafts longhand. Can you talk about your drafting like, process, how you cut and work, work out? Um, so I write kind of every day longhand, and then I type it up the next day, sometimes that night or the next day. And then um, I, you know, I print it out, but I try, for the first draft, I try not to look back too much. I'll get, I'll read the last three pages that I wrote or something to kind of remember where I am, the way you pause a movie and you rewind it a little bit to be like, what are they, fighting? And then, um, and then I write it, and then I, now I'm in a pretty good system of, I write a first draft of one book and I put it, and I put it away, and then I write the first draft of another book and then I put it away, and I try to do that three times. Sometimes I can only do it twice, because it's 
it's crazy making. Mm. But I try to do it three times because then you really do circle back to something that you haven't seen in a year, and it's really great. And um, I know that that's, I mean, that's a really hard discipline to get to. I only got to it recently. And I used to assume that everyone who said they did that was lying. Because <laughs> a lot of writers are like, I put it away for five years. And I was like, you do not. Yeah. You wrote it the day before. <laughs> you took the money and you blew it for five years. And then the night before you wrote it. I know you. And, um, and I think some of those people were lying. But it is really great. Um, so you haven't looked at it in a year, and if you are working on something else, then you're really in a whole different thing. So not only have you not looked at it, but you really haven't, it's not been in your head. Mm -hmm. And then you can kind of read it, the closest you'll ever be to be a reader of your mm -hmm. own work, is if you haven't seen it in a while. And, um, and then you can, the, then the, the process of shedding stuff, editing is so mm -hmm. gloriously easy. Mm -hmm. You just think like, this whole scene's boring. Mm -hmm horrible and then you just can cut it was some right. of the most fun you had I, I would imagine uh, writing dialogue of which there is a lot in the book and it's very yeah I like zippy, that I mean it's fun having back to talk to each other you know and I, I do think that um, if you uh, I just think on the page often you know if you turn the page sometimes and you see it's just there's no dialogue happening mm -hmm. for a while and you've turned the page, and they're like, they got on the train, and then you turn the page, and there's no dialogue. You're like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, so you're revisiting. Yeah. yeah. So I do like the dialogue. It's a dialogue's hard to edit because mm. um, continuity. Yeah, continuity, and um, you know, it's hard to see what's intrinsic to the dialogue because you want something to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and that, and then, and then, that was an example where I ran the writers' room for two seasons, or almost three seasons of. The Netflix show and those you have to every scene has a point. Yes. And that's not how it is in fiction sometimes, right? right? Like they're all talking in the car and the point is that they get someplace, but you want them to be talking a little bit and you want it to set up a tone but you don't know what it is and yeah, so it's harder to edit dialogue I think. But mm -hmm. it's I find it fun to write. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it sounds like you were really you got to be really involved in the Netflix, you know, process. Yeah. And, you know, with the, is that, you know, something that you it was part of a cycle that I'm actually very familiar with in adapting my own work where they say we can't do it without you please stay here and tell us how to do it and I say uh, okay this is not working you have to do it like this and they think who the hell are you get out, <laughs> <laughs> get out. <laughs> really and then, I, and then I'm out and then they're like we can't do it without you <laughs> um, and so that was what the first season was like. Um, and then they said, we would, w would you come to the uh, second season? And I said, no, monsters. <laughs> and they said, what will you, oh, tell us what you'll do. And I said, I'm gonna pick the writers and we're gonna meet in my dining room in San Francisco. Mm. Which was my way of saying, it's not gonna work. Uh, and they said, okay. Mm. Um, and I was very panicked, so yeah. I called, um, some friends who's a uh, uh, artistic director of uh, Radar here. So I called some friends at Radar and some other people I Reading knew. Program. And I just said, like, get me um, some good writers, basically. Because the writers, the first season the Netflix had found, and they were like, I wrote for nine horrible television shows. I've mm -hmm. had so much experience. I mean, like, Oof, mm. God. Um, they're transparently horrible. And, and then. You'd, of course, sorry, gone through. 
a movie version. I'd already had this experience a bunch of times with stuff that didn't even go to fruition, and I had it with the movie too. And um, so then, uh, so I found some playwrights basically Mm. that I I kept one writer from the writers' room who was their kind of pity hire. He was like the young guy. They also said he counted as diversity because he was gay, Mm. which I I, I don't know. I'm from San Francisco, so I was like, not. Doesn't mm. count as so good work for playwrights. <laughs> yeah, but he was great. He was the diverse person. Yeah. And um, so when we found A, some actual diverse people, and B, mm-hmm. some people who were playwrights and they enjoyed writing, they enjoyed thinking about narrative and how that worked. They mm. really liked that challenge. Mm-hmm. And they saw it as a gig that was going to make their own writing better. Mm-hmm. But that was so they were engaged in the material. Mm-hmm. And so they were great. And so. Um, they put them up in a hotel in Japan town uh, for a few weeks, and they would meet, we'd meet every day in my dining room and wow. do it. And then they went home. And then I also created. Uh, I, I'm just babbling about this because it's important to me. But I, one thing that happens in t- television writing rooms is not a competition, because what you want is your name on it. And the only way to do that is to be as aggressive as possible. And guess what that does for say people who aren't taught to be aggressive their whole childhood. So that's adds to the problem. And so, and then you end up having a false argument because you say, I think the story ought to go like this because you want your name on it mm. and you want your credit and you want your more money. And so the, I, we split up credit basically randomly. So everybody was guaranteed credit. They, so everybody in the writers' mm. room had two whole episodes, single credit, which is super rare. Mm. And so they all had it. And, um, and then they could just say, I've written the scene four times and it's not working. Will you please help me? Mm-hmm. which made everything better. Instead of, I think the scene is great, how dare you say it, because I know what you really want is co-writing credit, and then it's going to work out for me. Right, right. And um, so I think it really, mm-hmm. I think that really helped. And um, it drove Netflix insane, because, you know, they're like, competition is the whole thing. It's the whole reason I get up in the morning. And I was like, it's also the reason you clearly have a drug oh. problem. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> And then, um, and so that really made it great. And they all have gone on to TV because they all got credit. Mm-hmm. And they all were able to do something good. Mm-hmm. And the show's good and the scripts are good. And so they got credit for it. And then we won a little prize for it. And we had a, uh, an assistant. So, so most writers rooms have like 19 assistants who are busy getting coffee. And I was like, here's my coffee maker. Okay, pour it into a mug when you need some coffee. And we had one assistant, really great writer and she kind of couldn't get a break and um, so when we got the prize we because we divvied up credit randomly we all took the stage together mm. um, and I, the assistant gave a speech about how we split up credit and how we encourage more writers to do that and nice. because she gave the speech she got a job wow because oh, sure. hollywood's crazy yeah. right there's not an indication that she's a good writer but she is a good writer mm-hmm. and so they were like, she must be a good writer, because look, she's at a podium, mm-hmm. that's proof. There we and go. So, yeah, so, <laughs> so they're all working on TV now, mm-hmm. including mm-hmm. the one who is staying. They're all working on shows, mm-hmm. big shows, wow. pretty much. I wonder yeah. if it inspired Netflix, meanwhile, to try perhaps something like that approach. They, with I the know for a fact that they have specifically said, we will never do we that. We will never do that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly uh, then. People have gone to Netflix and said, like, hey, I heard because Handler did The it. Daniel like, Handler clause. And they're like, nope. Uh, and they rent the first uh, season. They rented a f- whole floor of an office building, and every writer had their own office. And mm-hmm. so, what they did was like put their feet up and try to figure out how they could not do any work. Yeah, they already had it. They already mm-hmm. had like a ton of money, you know. And they were like, "Let's have Thai food today." Mm-hmm. And 
I was like, we're having grilled cheese sandwiches here. They are. <laughs> <laughs> I made them. We're fixing my horrible scene. <laughs> Other questions, people? Please. I mean, almost always the answer is to cut it. And it's often that. And I just actually helped someone with their book where they felt it was built around the central event and they couldn't get the central event right. And I was like, if you cut it, you don't see the central event. And then mm. you have all these people worried it's going to happen and reacting to what have it happened. And I think it's going to be magical when it's done. And um, so oftentimes the thing that you think is not good is not good. And when you read it, I. I think it doesn't occur to people often to cut things. It occurs to you to add it, you know. And you and so it happens to me, and it happens to me all the time. So I, I don't mean that you can grow out of it, really. But now at least I know that it's happening. Is that I work on a sentence and then it's not good, and so I say like, let's add the word sinister, and it's not good. And then I say like, let's have her say something in the middle, and the sentence gets horrible. Uh -huh. But then I'm like, oh yeah, we don't need it because it's the sentence basically they was to say they got in the car, uh -huh. and that, we don't have to say that. Mm -hmm. And um, so you can often cut it. Mm -hmm. Also, think of all the books in the world that are too long, right? Almost all of them. And then <laughs> think of like, the books that are too short, and really there's hardly any. Mm -hmm. And most of even the books that you think are too short are not really too short. What you mean is I really liked it. Mm -hmm. That's what you mean. And um, and so, yeah. If your second draft is fifty pages shorter, what a wonderful gift you've given mm -hmm. everybody in the world. Mm -hmm. One more question, please. It has to be a question that kind of sums up everything that we've talked about. <laughs> no pressure. And inspires people to buy. Uh, well, I guess it's more. It's supposed to be more of the ambiance in the room since Cool. And so it was, it's along that line. Sort of maybe um, kind of you going home again. So you said you started um, as a poet. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you think um, your poetry background, that foundation influenced, if any at all, um, the prose that you write now? A lot, because it it's really small to work on a poem. And so I have a sense that my book is made of words and sentences, and I think a lot of people start with the thing that their book is full of ideas, and that's great. I, for me, I find the trouble is that it's really hard to edit an idea, mm. right? If you have an idea, if you're like, you know, freedom is a precious commodity, that's a great idea. And if you've written a novel that's brought based on that idea, it's hard to edit because you, there's no editing the idea. That's great. Um, but you can edit horrible sentences, like, so the cows come home. And uh, so I, yeah, I think that really helped. And um, I'm really grateful that I don't write poetry anymore. I'm really grateful for what it's taught me, but I really love being a reader of poetry and a publisher of poetry. Mm -hmm. I'll just say, because I think there's, there's some still for sale here downstairs, but um, another thing that happened with Netflix is when you visit the set, when I visited the set, you got a per diem, which is like money that they just give you because they don't want your receipts. Like if you want to go buy a sandwich, they don't want your receipts, so they give you some money. And they gave me a lot of money, more money than you would spend, and then every day. And then you, I was on set at like 7 in the morning, 
They're constantly feeding you. And I did not leave this small set of warehouses until like nine at night, every day. I would just go back to my hotel, stumble into bed with an envelope of money. And, <laughs> and the money was American money and Vancouver's in Canada. And uh, you, so you couldn't spend it, the whole thing was ridiculous. And so then if you did that for 10 days, you suddenly have like a money. Um, which you then put in your suitcase. <laughs> you feel like a drug smuggler. Um, and I decided that obviously this was totally immoral money. Um, because, I, you know, it wasn't like they didn't pay me. They paid me. And then um, they were giving me money. You know, everyone are giving money is rich. Every mm. single person. They're like, buy yourself a sandwich and don't charge it back. You know, and they're like, here you go, famous person who's been in 19 movies. Here's some money to buy yourself a sandwich. And so I used the money to publish three poets. They're available in a few bookstores here. We had a contest. And, um, and so that's a relationship with poetry that I admire. What, All right. what that I like doing is publishing it. It's really nice. And um, I also, there's some great, great poetry presses. Um, and um, I subscribe to Wave Books, which is um, expensive. But if, so, if you know you have a grandma and she's like, what can I get you for Christmas? I mm -hmm. subscription to Wave Books. Um, I subscribe to Archipelago, which does fiction too, and is um, a translation press, and reminds you of how wide the world of literature really mm -hmm. is. Because when you start reading something that's working in a tradition that you're really not familiar with, when you mm -hmm. when you dive deep into Turkish literature, mm -hmm. you are in a different place, mm -hmm. and you will feel differently about Jonathan Franzen when you arrive. And, um, <laughs> What else? Ugly Duckling Press, that's a really great publisher press. So anyway, the, I, I know you guys are up here in poetry, and obviously I can't help but uh, nudge you towards buying my own book, because that's kind of the job here that I have tonight. Mm. But um, there is marvelous poetry here. It is a great thing to read in the morning, and a great press to do here. It is a karmic thing that you will do that, that will come back to you. And I have a very narrow set of spiritual beliefs. But one of my spiritual beliefs is that if you enter an independent bookstore and you leave without a book, you are sinning. <laughs> and I'm doing events for all month promoting this book, and I'm going into a bookstore like every other day, and you gotta buy them here. This is this. Uh, I just read about this guy. He's an Iranian poet who had hardly any education whatsoever. Mm. James Tate wrote one book, one last mm. book before he died. He's awesome. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know Charles Simic had a new book. He's really mm -hmm. super, and then I was literally thinking the other day that I ha wasn't reading enough Charles Wright, and when I walked in, there was a Charles Wright omnibus here. He's uh, this. Have you read him? No, sadly. He so, is. thank you. Anyway, he's uh, an African American uh, novelist of great power, mm -hmm. and uh, so please buy something today. He, yeah, here's buy to something. not sinning. <laughs> thank you, Daniel. Here's more alcohol. Books and booze up front. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.